This is Homebound Oregon, a podcast created for these turbulent times set in the town of Ashland, Oregon, right here in the foothills of the Cascade and Siskiyou Mountains. A few summers back, I was at a Presbyterian youth camp just outside of Austin, Texas. On one of the last nights of camp, they held a talent show. And after a series of skits and bad karaoke, one of the older camp chaperones, a Presbyterian pastor, stood up in front of the microphone holding a rubber chicken. And for 10 minutes, maybe more, he recited a number of chicken jokes, except instead of delivering the punchline, each time he came to the end of the setup, he would just thrust the rubber chicken in front of the microphone and squeeze it. Why did the chicken go to the seance? What do you get if you cross a chicken with a cement mixer? What do you call a chicken with a piece of lettuce in his eye? A priest, a rabbi, and chicken enter a bar. The bartender says, what do you have? The priest says, I'll have a Pim's cup. The rabbi says, I'll have a glass of Merlot. The chicken says nothing. The bartender brings the priest and rabbi their orders, and then he looks over at the chicken. I keep thinking about this repetitive, idiotic performance, because this is what life has felt like under the pandemic. No matter the situation, the answer seems to always be the same. Plans canceled, dreams canceled, celebrations, social gatherings, informal get-togethers. We're going to go see our daughter compete in the regional track finals. We have a family reunion planned in July. Our neighborhood barbecue will be hosted. We have season tickets for the Oregon Shakespeare. Are you going to the open mic night at the Black Sheep? For Father's Day, graduation, date night, parents' night, movie night. And then, in the midst of this depressing numbing, sort of frightening pandemic with our local economy in a tailspin, with a political system that appears to be run by insane clown posse, on top of all of this chaos and unrest, just when we thought things couldn't get worse, fires break out across southern Oregon. I've got the trailer park involved at Lumen. I need some resources. Just an FYI, it's made the back of the trailer park. I have trailers involved. Copy that, 55. Be advised, we have nothing to send you at this time. We have no resources except what I sent you earlier. Within a few hours, over 3,000 homes destroyed. Another 1,500 structures burned, including many local businesses. 11 people killed. And many friends and neighbors simply just had to run for their lives, leaving behind treasured possessions, their cars, even pets. Whipped by high winds and increasingly hot and dry weather, these climate fires have just been catastrophic, disproportionately affecting our local Latinx community and destroying much of the low-income housing across the towns of Ashland, Talent, and Phoenix, Oregon. And although 
the community has come together to offer money and food and supplies and spare bedrooms and all kinds of really creative volunteer efforts, the need is just enormous. I mean, many local families are now living in their cars. They're living in tents. Some have just simply left everything behind, their jobs, their community, the place where they've raised their kids just to find shelter. They've just left the whole region. And it's all just incredibly heartbreaking. So for this episode, we decided just to spend some time talking to those affected by the fires, as well as those seeking to respond to this suffering. We begin with Joxana Corona, a local counselor and mother of two from Talon, Oregon. I was home and I happened to get a text from the Ashland emergency system saying that there was a fire in Ashland. I remember going outside. My daughter was playing outside with a neighbor and I could hear sirens already going on Highway 99. And one of my neighbors who lives across the street was looking towards Ashland and she pointed and told me, hey, check out all that smoke. And I told her, oh, wow, I just got a text saying that there's a fire in Ashland. And from the look of it, that smoke was pretty nearby. It it had been really windy that day. I very cautiously walked inside the house. I didn't, I tried not to panic. I tried not to run in, but like deep inside of me, I wanted to run in, get my kids and get out. But I had to be cautious about it because I didn't want to panic my kids. So I went inside and I told my son, hey, sweetie, you know, we should probably grab the cats and the dogs because there's a fire in Ashland and I think we should just leave. I didn't even use the word evacuate. I said, I think we should leave. And then I told him, I'm going to call your dad and tell him to come get us because I don't drive. So I was just home alone with my kids. So I called my husband and told him, I was like, babe, there's a fire in Ashland. We got to go. Like, I'm scared. I don't think this is good. I told him I, it looked really, really close. And I told him, please come get us. It took him about 20 minutes to get to us. He works in Medford. And me and my daughter were trying to find our cats. So we were running up and down the street looking for them. And while we were doing that, we knocked on neighbors' doors, specifically the ones who speak Spanish, and told them that there was a fire that they should evacuate. I didn't even use the word consider. I told them, you guys got to leave, because I I just had a feeling it was going to come our way faster than people were anticipating. Mm -hmm. My neighbors, the ones who were actually on their porch watching the smoke, I told them, you guys got to go. Like, we got to go. And they said, no, no. You know, we can hear the sirens. They're they're on their way there. They're going to take care of it. And I told them, gosh, this wind is going to screw us over. I remember vividly saying, screw us over. And they said that they would wait until they were told to evacuate. They said that if if a warning came, then they would leave. And from my understanding, that warning never came. That fire moved so quick that by the time a warning came, the fire was literally across the street. And cops were using sirens and saying, like, leave, evacuate. And from my understanding, it was all in English. So the Spanish-speaking neighbors didn't understand what was going on. Some of them were afraid to even look outside or step outside because they kept hearing ambulances and sirens. And within the Latinx community, there is a fear of cops. There is a fear of having interactions with cops. Um, My daughter, who speaks Spanish as well, was telling her friends, hey, you know, call your parents, tell them that you guys should leave. My son got on the phone and started texting friends and letting them know that there was a fire and that we were evacuating and that they should probably consider evacuating. So you're notifying neighbors, you're knocking on doors, you're talking to people, you're trying to find your cats. And then what happened? My husband pulled in and he, I mean, he was driving into our driveway and we made eye contact as I was outside and I knew the look in his face. I knew it was serious. So I kind of followed him into the driveway and he said, 
we got to go. I was like, yeah, I know. So he ran and got our kids' birth certificates, our birth certificates, social security cards, and passports. That's all he grabbed. So we had to get our cats and dogs, the ones that we had managed to find. We found two of our cats were already inside, and my daughter found two that were outside. We had to hold some of the cats on our laps, put the dogs in the carriers, and then one of my neighbors had dropped off her dog. So we had our our two dogs, my neighbor's dog, and four cats with us. And then we left without four other cats that were ours. So I remember my daughter crying and telling my husband, please, like, can we still look for our cats? And my husband said, no, we got to go. My daughter like was crying. She said, no, my cats, we're going to leave them behind. What if they burn? So she had a small pool, like one of those plastic pools, and she filled it up with water and she left the water running. She said that if the fire got to us, then maybe the cats could jump in the water. I was like, sure, Mika, if that's how you feel you're going to save them, then let's do it. It was really hard to tell her, yeah, let's hopefully they jump in the water. But knowing that if the fire hit that area, like there was nothing that would save our cats. Yeah. And as I drove out, I could see some of my neighbors who we had warned about the fire. They were already loading their cars. And there was this... um you know, this look in their eyes where you didn't even have to say anything. But as we drove off and saw two of our neighbors getting their kids in their cars, um, I don't know, there was this sense of like, you know, take care of yourself. We hope, we hope to see you again. I mean, we didn't say those words, but just looking at them, it was, it was sad because in my mind, I thought we would come back. In my mind, I thought, okay, I'm just being dramatic. Maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but I didn't feel safe. I just had a bad feeling. And my husband says that usually when I have those bad feelings, like I'm usually right. So he says that when I have a bad feeling, he listens to me. We were on Highway 99. The traffic became a complete stop. We weren't moving at all. Um, And my husband and I thought, oh, crap, we're stuck here and the fire is behind us. We didn't say anything to each other, but I tried to keep my kids calm. I grabbed my phone and I was taking pictures of them. I was like, you guys, smile. You know, we survived coronavirus. We survived quarantine. Now we're going to survive a wildfire. Smile. So, and I was like, look at our car full of dogs and cats, you know. Um, So our car was not moving. We were probably better off walking. We would have moved faster. Um, Luckily, traffic started moving. And we were able to get out of um, Talent. So you leave Talent, and where did you go to? We went to Medford, my husband's cousin's house. Um, as we were evacuating, his cousin Alma called me, and she told me, come to my house. So we drove to her house in Medford, and we were there all day. My mother-in-law arrived at Alma's house, and she was completely shaking. She drove by her house and our house. She saw everything on fire. So I called my brother-in-law. And I told him, hey, your mom made it here with us. We're safe, but you should come. So he came to Alma's house. And then next thing you know, a fire broke out right in front of their house. There was about 20 of us running into our cars trying to get out of there. And we had to evacuate even quicker than we did in the morning. We could see the flames across the street. So we ended up going to my friend's house in Grants Pass. And we spent the night there. And then the next morning, we ended up coming back to Center Point to my brother-in-law's house. Um, and then another fire broke in Center Point, and we were a level three evacuation again. So in a 24-hour period, we evacuated three times. Jaxana, I'm just sitting here with what you guys went through. 
I mean, it's one thing to leave your house, but then to have to leave again and again, and then to to feel the fear and trauma of relatives and friends. When did you find out what happened to your home? The next morning, on September 9th, I got a text from one of Carlos's cousins, and she sent me a picture of where my house stood. I showed my husband the text. I walked towards him and kind of hinted him to like come my way without the kids. And I showed him the picture and he was not surprised. He was like, okay, well, it's official, it's gone. So I told him, should we tell the kids? And we are very open and honest with our kids. We try not to keep anything from them. So he said, yeah, we should just tell them. And then what has life been like since then? <sighs> it's been an emotional roller coaster for me because I have been bombarded with so much love and affection and support from people who I didn't even realize cared that much about me. The first week, people were dropping off food, people were dropping off clothes, shoes. I mean, people were very much giving to us. Sometimes it seems like when there are large events like this, particularly disasters, we really see what's going on in our local community, both the good and the bad. And what has it revealed for you? Um, definitely that we were not prepared. The cities were not prepared. Jackson County was not prepared for a big thing like this. I see too many families displaced, too many families wondering where they're going to sleep. I know many families are still sleeping in their cars. There was already a lack of housing. I believe it was black 1% of vacancy in Southern Oregon. That's how many apartments were available to rent, only 1%. And now it's nothing. The few people who were financially stable and able to come up with the first and last month and a down uh, a deposit, which, you know, right now, if you want to rent anywhere, you have to have at least three grand on hand to pay the first, last and deposit. And not many families in my community could afford that. Many of my neighbors live paycheck to paycheck. So housing has become a privilege. It already was, but it's more evident now. I know the majority of the homes that were lost in this fire were low-income housing. Is there anything you want people to know who were not at the center of this tragedy well, this isn't over. We still need help. Again, like me and my family are okay, but we're just one of the very few families who are okay. I know there are more families who are struggling than those who aren't. My kids have more friends who lost their home than friends who didn't. My daughter doesn't have a single friend who didn't lose her house. My son has two friends who didn't lose their house. Everyone else that he knows has lost their home. And so what, what we need to realize as a, as a local community is Everyone who can help needs to help right now, whether yes. that's giving money, volunteering, um, donating resources, particularly providing space for people who need it. The hardest thing for me as an immigrant is that I wanted to provide a home for my kids, a stable home. My kids were brought home from the hospital to that house. My kids celebrated every birthday in that house. They woke up every morning in the same house. I didn't have that. I envision my kids going off to college and coming home to visit us in that same house. That's what hurts.
Joxana Corona is currently sheltering with her family in Medford, Oregon. She is an advocate for undocumented people throughout our region and is facilitating a project that seeks to collect written stories of local residents affected by the disaster. All eight cats, by the way, survived the fires, including the four left behind. Joxana told me not a whisker was singed. There was an enormous outpouring of care and generosity in the wake of the fires. Resource centers popped up across our county. One of the most active relief centers was set up spontaneously by the Padilla family at their restaurant, El Tapatio. Without electricity or running water, the family and employees and teams of volunteers worked to put together care packages, food, and other resources. I called Yahaira Padilla to talk with her about this work. Me and my sisters ended up just going to Walmart and um, Costco, and we just piled up our car with as much supplies as we could. And we were like, all right, let's do some care packages. We got into the house, we grabbed all the extra blankets, all the extra pillows, and we just said, let's go to the restaurant and figure it out. Um, My dad throughout this time was actually at the restaurant. He was already helping people. And so we made an announcement saying, we're going to be here tomorrow. If you guys, you know, need anything, please come by. The response was very shocking. We had about 200 to 300 different cars waiting for us when we came in. Kind of makes me emotional to this day. I I don't know, like it it was just a lot to, to take in that so many families were needing assistance and there was no free space for us to even drive in and drop off the merchandise and figure out where to park our car later. And so we get in, we start organizing and we start telling people, all right, give us a second to set up. We're going to see what we can do. Within two days, it went from 10 packages to a whole operation. By day, I believe it was three or four. I had a food coordinator, volunteer coordinator. Um, I started housing on day two because I had people that were telling me they were staying in their cars and that broke my heart. That night I ended up um, housing three different families in a hotel. I I, I went and I, I was like, I'm buying you a hotel at least for the night because I need to make sure you guys are okay. I had a few friends who were like, hey, I actually have a spare room if you need any space. And I was like, yes, spread the word. If you have any neighbors that have rooms, let me know. So then I had so many people saying, you know, I'm willing to sponsor a family at a hotel. I'm willing to give up my room. I have a whole extra floor. I have an RV outside that's not being used. People were just wanting to give. And so we just had badass women taking control, taking initiative and being like, we're going to get this done. It is just beautiful to see that in time of crisis, like we're all humans. It doesn't matter. It should not matter your race, your age, your religion, nothing. Like if you are a human who needed help, we were going to help you. I feel like there was always a disconnect between the Latinx and the American communities here in Ashland and in the Valley, I should say. And so now, to me, this is a beautiful open door and opportunity for us to merge them. This is going to make history in our books, for sure, due to the fact, not because of the fire, but because it's going to be the day that we decided to stop having separate communities, stop having labels, and we decided to just work as people and as humans on this earth to help and support each other and build ourselves up. Do I feel overwhelmed all the time? Do I feel like there's a lot on my plate? Yes. 
But does it motivate me and does it actually help me focus on the bigger picture of life? Definitely. Yahaira has now set up an office at one of the relief centers in Talent, Oregon. She continues to stay in touch with hundreds of families, helping them get the support and assistance they need as they work to rebuild their lives. In the weeks after the fires, the whole Rogue Valley filled with this thick, toxic smoke. There were many fires across Oregon, fires in Northern California, and all of us here were just forced to stay indoors, if we were able to. We had to wear breathing masks if you went outside. Sometimes we had to wear masks inside if you could get them. And it hasn't been unusual to hear people in this valley use the word apocalyptic to describe the current state of the world. And this word, apocalypse, is usually used to reference a sort of end times, but in the original Greek, the word actually means a disclosure or a revealing of a deeper reality. And for those of us here in Southern Oregon, the fires have been a kind of disclosure, an unveiling of the many inequalities and divisions that exist in our region not only between the white and Latinx community, but also between the haves and the have-nots. And I heard this in a conversation I had recently with Isabella Vassara Rosaricas, whose pronouns are they, them. Isabella grew up in Talent, Oregon. They lived with their mother in Talent Mobile Estates. Their grandmother lived close by. Isabella was studying engineering at Oregon State University in Corvallis when the fires hit. Both of her family's homes were lost. My friend wakes me up with a call, and my friend tells me, call your mom right now. So I do, and she's hyperventilating. She's, like, in the process of evacuating when I'm talking to her. I don't know why I was so calm, but I just stood there, and I felt like my face was made of stone. And she was grabbing as many paintings as she could, as much art as she could. And I just kept telling her to just get herself out. Eventually she got off the phone. She was going to go check in with some other friends. And I stood there. I just stood there for a really long time, just staring out the window. I feel like this, this grimness washed over me. I felt like something was closing in on me and I fell onto the ground and I laid there and I knew the meaning of the word poor in that moment, I think. I knew what it meant to be poor. It's mostly the fate of the poor to bear these kinds of tragedies. And the poor and the artists and the Latinx people are the heart of this community. I think about my great-grandmother's spoon collection or the paper mache dragon head my grandma had made that had uh, lights that glowed inside of it. And I think about my, my parents and their youthful faces all over the wall. There was this photo wall too, and all photos of like my parents from the 90s, and me when I was a baby, and so much of our family going back so far. And it was just this 
bulletin board. I mean, my, my grandma isn't really a formal person when it comes to the things she cares about. So they just, they're just tacked on all over the place, just full of photos. I think of my very first art pieces I have ever made in my life. I think about the, the table mats that I finger painted when I was three, that my grandma was her most treasured possessions. And all of the evidence that I looked like myself when I was a baby. And I just feel like that's, it all lives inside my brain now. I think about those things a lot. It's really strange to be without them, in a sense, or to know that they are nowhere. As Isabella and I were sitting on our back deck talking, the microphone battery suddenly died. I didn't notice it. However, later, after they left, I noticed that a background microphone had faintly captured Isabella's words. We had just finished our conversation, and I could feel this sadness, this heaviness. So I asked, what gives you hope at this time? Isabella replied, I wanted to come here and tell you that I am hopeful, but I'm not. My mom and grandmother cannot find housing. My grandmother is very sick. She has lost weight. She's about 80 pounds. The situation is beyond dire. It was dire before the fires. So to be honest, I am very grim. I then asked Isabella if there was anything else they wanted to say. And Isabella said, I hope this fire is a mirror in which people can see the economic disparity. A mirror in which people can look at themselves honestly and recognize their responsibility to use whatever power they have in this society equitably to not just donate and then go back to normal. I think everyone's lives should be careened by the fires. Everyone should do whatever they can, because the truth is, we need help. What are we supposed to do with this seemingly endless litany of bad news, climate disasters, economic pain, illness, moral failings? I don't know. But in the midst of the heartbreak there's been this song, the Keep Going On song. Have you ever had a song that just starts singing you? You know, like it just starts playing inside of you, shows up when you need it? Well, the Keep Going On song has been singing me these days. It comes from this video of Abigail and Sean Bankson singing in the basement of Sean's parents' house in Dayton, Ohio, where the couple and their three-year-old are sequestering. This song is from a show they live-streamed this fall, also titled The Keep Going On Song. And in this video, they're sitting side by side. They got a keyboard, a guitar, some microphones, and they are sort of free-form singing about the absurdity of this time and the ridiculous hope that lives within the human being, this hope that maybe if we keep moving forward, things could get better. Keep going, keep going, keep going on. In the midst of the insanity, the grimness, the destruction, the love, the selfishness, the failure, the joy, the ashes, the lost and found cats, keep going on. It is this hope that lives within the human heart that can't be stifled, this dream that a more gracious world, 
a more just life is possible someplace, someday. Rumi once wrote, Beyond right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. May we all find the courage and strength to keep going, to keep moving toward that verdant field that the heart knows is possible. Keep going on, keep going on, this is a keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on, keep going on song. This is a keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on, keep going on song. I am Abigail, and this is Sean, and we're so glad that you've turned this on and welcomed us into your home, and you are welcome into our home. We're in. Dayton, Ohio. We're in Sean's parents' house. <laughs> Sean's parents' house. We were in Louisville when the shit hit, and we packed our three-year-old into a car. We drove kind of far. We drove here, and we've been so lucky and blessed to be safely here. And we thought we'd be here for like ten days. Tops. What did we know? What did, what did we, we know? Was? We thought we knew a lot. We this thought we knew going, a lot. Keep going, keep going, keep going on. Keep going on, song. This is a keep going, keep going, keep going on. Keep going on, song. And we've been mostly healthy. We've been okay. Are you okay? Are you all right? Are you okay? Are you all right? Are you okay? I hope your body is whole tonight. And if your heart is breaking, I hope it's breaking open. And if your breath is shaking, I hope it's shaking through. And then I hope that you've watched a lot of really great television, like a lot of it. And I hope that you find a hand lotion that actually makes your skin feel better. And I hope that you have enough to eat. I hope you're getting enough sleep and I hope you have enough good company or enough good memory to last you a long time. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on. Keep going on song. We sing that keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on. Keep going on song. Let's bring some joy into the room, why not? We can try it, we can try it, or some rage, and some grief and relief. I hope my rage, I pray my rage is a fire that cleans my mind out and makes me Get up as 
that when we meet again, that the world has changed into the world that we are imagining now together. And I pray that the world has become the world that we're planting inside of ourselves for each other and for our ancestors. by singing some songs in this tiny space together. We're just gonna sing some songs for you and we hope that when you hear them, you will feel a little bit less alone and we will feel a little bit less alone in the work and in the hurt and we will be together tonight somehow, whenever this is, wherever this is. We will be together tonight. For the Homebound Organ is produced by The Hearth out of Ashland, Oregon, with support from the Jackson County Cultural Coalition and the Ford Family Foundation. Guitar and piano accompaniment by Dan Sherrill. Sound engineering by Noah Catton and Joseph Pilgrim. The Keep Going On song is played with permission from Abigail and Sean Bankson. Please check out their music and workshops and other fun stuff at bankson's.com, B-E-N-G-S-O-N-S.com. And if you're able to donate to Fire Relief in Southern Oregon, go to unitedwayofjacksoncounty.org. You'll find a designated Fire Relief Fund on their Give page. I'm your host, Mark Iaconelli, and for more information on The Hearth and Homebound Organ, go to thehearthcommunity.com. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on, keep going on, song. Uh-huh.